You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, add Snap to the list of big tech names laying off hundreds of workers. This is two top ad execs leave Snap for Netflix. The slowdown in revenue growth being felt across the tech industry, and some companies like Netflix are turning to ads as the answer. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg's conversation with Joe Rogan offered a glimpse into his vision for Meta. But the tough reality is that vision hasn't changed much since Facebook bought Oculus back in 2014, and people just don't seem that into it. And we continue our EdTech series after a new poll shows less than half of Americans support President Biden's student debt relief plan. We will also chat with the CEO of the textbook maker, Pearson who thinks NFTs could be a new revenue stream. All of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at Snap slashing staff, scaling back on investments to rein in costs after a broader pullback on ad spending, snapping its sales growth this year. Snapchat's parent company, the latest in a wave of tech layoffs that has plunged the NASDAQ into choppy waters. Let's get the latest now with Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. So Alex, this is a pretty deep cut we're talking about, and they're cutting a lot of businesses that were generating a lot of buzz. What's happening here? That's right, it's a deep cut and it doesn't just stop at headcount numbers. So Snap has its core Snapchat platform. They've also um, kind of rolled out a number of buzzy projects like the Pixie drone, which, fl- which flies around and takes pictures or like app uh, mini games within the app. A lot of these projects are falling by the wayside. They're either being killed or scaled back in the case of something like Snap's Spectacles. Now, all of this has basically come to a head as the company um, said, the CEO said in an internal memo, that that revenue growth for this quarter is basically going to hit single digits for the first time ever since they're a public company. Um, so they are looking at the company, really refocusing on anything that is monetizable, on their ad business, and on any future potential um, uh, places to make revenue, and calling basically everything else, Emily. They're also losing their chief business officer, Jeremy Gorman, going over to Netflix. We actually recently had Jeremy right here on the show. What do you make of this? 
Yeah, so this is part of this kind of restructure slash reorg that Snap has. All of Jeremy Gorman's businesses um, are shifting over to a new chief operating officer um, that they have promoted from their engineering team. Look, I think that uh, an analyst over at JMP Securities summed it up best. They said, we don't really know who's in charge of the ad business right now. Um, I think it'll be a, another bit of this kind of prove me process to be sure that leadership there at Snap really can um, show that they can kind of lean into the role that Jeremy is exiting. She is a kind of seasoned ad executive. She is really strong on the ad sales side and has experience at other big tech companies. So they definitely have a bit of a gap there to fill. Um, and look, that whole business, which is the money-making arm of Snap, will now be reporting into a brand new exec in a new seat. So for investors, they are happy to see the cost cuts uh, from the news today. But I would guarantee that that's going to be a place that they're watching because that is, you know, the bread and butter of Snap's top line. Now, now there's been a lot of tumult in social media, but you know, for somewhat different reasons. Obviously, Meta, we reported yesterday, they're laying off a bunch of contractors, also doing this big pivot to the metaverse. Twitter is embroiled in this lawsuit with Elon Musk. You've got TikTok, you know, fighting the, the, these content moderation wars, but kind of winning on the engagement side. Can you compare Snap's fortunes with these other competitive platforms? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, Emily. Snap has really uh, kind of benefited from its reputation and its prowess with younger generations. Um, that is really uh, when advertisers go there to spend money. Like that is one of the things that's top of mind. Snap owns the younger generations. Well, now you have TikTok on the scene, who has also uh, really done well to win over the downloads and the business of those younger audiences. So you have TikTok kind of leaning in and pushing in on Snap. Um, and, and kind of threatening their core user base. And then you have places, as you mentioned, like Meta, and I would also throw Google, its search and YouTube businesses in the mix there too, which are a bit more, uh, I would say, dependable for advertisers. So if you're looking at a where is the money going basis, we've seen through the last earn few earning cycles, it's not really going to snap. TikTok's a private company, so we will see. Uh, Meta and YouTube, Google seem to be continuing to kind of rake in the cash. So it's definitely Definitely a fight out, and I would toss Instagram there in the mix too as well, um, probably somewhere in the middle. It's definitely a, a battle that is raging that we'll be paying a lot of attention to, but when it comes to Snap, again, like this kind of podium they've been on of owning Gen Z, of owning the teens and 20-somethings, I think that's really coming under threat in a way that uh, perhaps they haven't seen before from the likes of Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. All right, Alex Barinka, thank you. Cover social media for us, appreciate it. Well, as we mentioned, those two Snap executives going from Snap's ad business to help Netflix launch their ad-supported platform, Jeremy Gorman, as we mentioned, along with the president of ad sales, Peter Naylor, joining Netflix in September here to tell us more about this, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. So Lucas, how big a coup is this for Netflix? I mean, look, they, they took two of the top executives in the digital ad business right now. Uh, Peter Naylor in particular, though, though Jeremy Gorman, I believe, is more senior at Snap. Peter Naylor helped build the ad business at Hulu, which other than YouTube is really the biggest digital video ad business in the U.S. Netflix has spent the past couple of months, if not longer, looking for some executives to, to lead the charge for them as they move into advertising. And now they have you know, two really solid people. So at this point, what do we know about Netflix's ad-supported tier, how it'll compare to Disney's ad-supported tier, et cetera? 
Uh, we know that it's going to debut either in the final three months of this year, likely in November, December, or at the very beginning of next year. Uh, my reporting has suggested that it will be cost about half as much as the basic Netflix tier. So think like eight bucks, nine bucks. Uh, there will be advertising in some programming, but not all, not advertising in kids programming, at least not at first, not advertising in new movies. Uh, and there'll be ads before and during some programs, but not after. And they're aiming for about four minutes of advertising per hour. You, you brought up Disney. The four minute, Netflix sort of like Disney and like HBO Max is aiming for a low advertising load and they can charge a lot for those advertisements. They don't want to have much more than four minutes per hour. They don't want to make it uncomfortable for the viewers. That's much easier said than done. And we'll have a better sense of what this looks and feels like when these services come out uh, at the end of the year. Couple interesting headlines out from Dow Jones. One that Disney is exploring an Amazon Prime-like membership program to offer various discounts and perks. Another that Netflix is looking to charge brands premium pricing for this ad-supported tier, which is not necessarily a surprise. What do you make of these? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Disney news, I, I think, makes a lot of sense. They already have a bundle for their three streaming services, and they also will charge fans of their parks for what's called an annual pass, where you can pay one set price and get to go again and again, with the exception of certain days. Look, Disney is the one media company that has a truly loyal fan base. They love the brand. They love the characters. Uh, and so them trying to create one bundle for their super fans that people can pay and reduce churn or the number of cancellations uh, for for some of their services makes all the sense in the world. You know, as for Netflix, I, I don't, I, I honestly don't think that's really news. Both the Journal and we have reported before that they're looking to charge premium prices. All right, uh, that would make sense. Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, thank you very much. Meantime, Twitter has subpoenaed Stanford University as part of its legal battle with Elon Musk. Yes, the university. We'll tell you why next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Let's get the latest now on the Musk Twitter trial. The billionaire asking for more time again, this time to dissect the claims of a whistleblower. And also, Elon Musk wants to talk with his alma mater, and that is Stanford University. Here to explain, Bloomberg's Jeff Feely. So, Jeff, let me get this straight. We thought it was Twitter subpoenaing Stanford, but actually it's Musk subpoenaing Stanford. Why would correct. Musk... Why would Musk want information from Stanford University about the Twitter deal? Okay, so we don't know for sure, but one of the Twitter board members, a Dr. Lee, uh, works at Stanford and is one of the AI experts at Stanford, so it could be that. Uh, it also could be he wants to check and see who she had conversations with among her colleagues about, you know, problems with the deal. So... You know, where exactly could this lead? Well, I mean, what, what's going on here is both sides are trying to put together their cases for the October 17th trial. And Mr. Musk wants to know what, you know, what conversations uh, the Twitter board members have had with people about this. Obviously looking for material that would, you know, help him justify walking away. Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, obviously this case is changing by the minute. Uh, yesterday, uh, we learned Elon Musk wanted to try to get the trial pushed to November. Now he's potentially trying to get it pushed even further out to December. What exactly do we know about what Musk is asking for at this point? Well, they're asking to push the trial to late November, early December to give themselves and the Twitter folks more time to dig into the allegations of the whistleblower that have emerged. And, you know, people need to find out whether uh, his allegations are substantial or sour grapes. This gentleman was fired from Twitter as head of its computer security uh, for what the company says were performance issues. So it's going to take some time to really dig into this. And they're running out of time in terms of discovery. Late November, to state the obvious, is Thanksgiving in the United States. So that, you know, leads me to potentially December. What's the likelihood, in your view, that this case, this trial gets moved? Um, and when, when will a judge make a decision on this? Well, we don't know when Judge McCormick will rule, but most people believe she's going to grant more time because the emergence of this gentleman uh, was a surprise, and there's some inkling there could be other whistleblowers coming down the pike. So there could be a need for, you know, to, to push it back in the interest of justice. So here's the question. Elon Musk, you know, said he was going to buy Twitter with no diligence. That's on Elon Musk. Why is it all of the, why are these additional claims actually relevant? Well, the, the whistleblower raised issues about lax computer security and privacy concerns. If Twitter did not disclose those things to Mr. Musk as part of the deal, and even though he didn't do due diligence, they still have uh, legal duties to disclose things like that. It's called representations and warranties. And if the judge finds that they should have disclosed those things and didn't, it can sink the deal. All right. Uh, lots going on here. Jeff, really appreciate you continuing to give us the play-by-play -play and help us make sense of all these moves. Bloomberg's Jeff Feely in Delaware. Very busy guy for us. Thank you.
you'll be able to have this experience in the future where like you're sitting in a meeting um, and you know, your wife texts you and it pops up in the corner of your glasses and you want to respond, but you don't want to like pull out your phone because that's kind of rude, right? Um, so you just kind of like, I don't know, twitch your wrist a little bit, maybe like this, like some super discreet motion um, that no one even knows you're doing it and you just like send a message. And that seems like a massive distraction. I mean, people are already distracted by their phones. Like when people well, get a text message and they're like, hang on a second, I just can't answer this real quick. And you're like, okay. And you're sitting there having lunch with someone and they're not talking to you anymore because they're looking at their phone. But now they're going to be looking at these AR glasses and just thinking out text messages. Just some of Mark Zuckerberg's very lengthy conversation on Joe Rogan's popular podcast last week. Three hours the interview was. An opportunity for Zuckerberg to defend Meta's pivot to virtual and augmented reality. But as you just heard with Rogan's rebuttal, Zuckerberg's vision is facing a tough reality. Here to discuss, Max Chafkin. So th there's a lot here, Max. But overall, what do you make of how... Mark Zuckerberg portrayed his vision and how Joe Rogan reacted to it. Well, so the thing that was just striking to me as somebody who's followed this for a long time is how little Mark Zuckerberg's VR, AR, metaverse, whatever you want to call it, how little that vision has changed. Um, you know, we've kind of, over the last six months or so, been talking about it as if it's this, you know, brand new thing. Yeah, they, they, they're spending billions of dollars um, and kind of forgetting that Facebook purchased Oculus, uh, you know, the company that seeded the, the VR effort in 2014. It has spent you know, even before spending $10 billion in 2021, it had spent billions and billions of dollars marketing several successive devices. Um, and, you know, they, they had a Super Bowl ad in February and really has gotten not a whole lot of traction, all things considered. And, and I think part of the reason is what we just heard, that this pitch, which is that you're going to kind of want to put Facebook um, inside of virtual reality uh, and, and strap it to your face, uh, is just not that compelling. And they, and they really still haven't figured out a way to, to sell it. And, and for three hours with Joe Rogan, we saw Zuckerberg kind of working, you know, basically trying to, has every trick he could think of to, to sell it. And, and, you know, coming up short, I would say. Now, I'd actually heard that texting example from Zuckerberg before about his wife sending him a text and how VR could be cool uh, to help him check that text without other people noticing. This one was new to me. Take a listen. There's something that's just so primal um, about it. That's, I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, and I, I've, since then, I've just introduced a bunch of my friends to it, and that's been really fun because now it's like we train together and we just like wrestle together, and just I, I don't know. There's like a certain intensity to it that I um, that I, I, I like. Now I understand that maybe Zuckerberg's trying to show a little bit more of his human side, um, but there's a, a a sort of naivete there, or or a, a falling flat, I might say. Yeah, you know, one of the most successful tech uh, uh, people in the world uh, bringing the cringe to Joe Rogan. Um, he it maybe wasn't clear if, if, if people were just coming to it cold, but he's talking about jujitsu. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has gotten into, uh, I guess, uh, uh, combat sports, um, and he was trying to bond with Joe Rogan. And again, I think, um, you know, kind of jokes aside with this, it just shows like 
this company is trying everything they can to connect with people. So, you know, they, they again, they tried Super Bowl ads, they tried, you know, demos, and now Zuckerberg's, you know, sort of trying on this, like, alpha male, you know, I'm into fighting sports thing to, to convince Joe Rogan's audience, which is substantial. I mean, Joe Rogan has, you know, the most successful podcast in the world to, you know, give give the, uh, you know, Oculus uh, or, or, or the uh, Facebook VR devices uh, a shot. Meantime, let's talk about what he had to say about sort of screens and television and how he imagines um, all of these different screens and interfaces working together. Take a listen to what he had to say. I just want the time that people spend with screens to be better. Mm. Because, I mean, today so much of it is like you're just sitting around and, I don't know, in this like beta state, consuming stuff. And yeah. I think that that's like, I don't know. So I wonder what he means by beta state there and if his vision of screens is actually what people want. Yeah, it's, it's hard to understand if you're trying to kind of connect with the masses and convince them that this new product you have is great, um, that you want to start out by sort of, um, you know, dissing uh, what's basically the most popular entertainment medium in the world. I think what he was trying to say is that television is passive, and he was sort of using this kind of Joe Rogan verse alpha, meaning active, strong, manly, passive, meaning uh, so beta, meaning passive or almost effeminate to refer to television. But it, it really is kind of a head scratcher, and I just think it, it it just goes to show how kind of all over the place the marketing has been here, and and it's it's worked. In certain ways, right? Like the 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 these hardware devices have sold reasonably well as as kind of video game consoles. But in terms of trying to broaden this out, making this something that you know regular people are going to use for meetings or 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 for travel or something, I mean, really, we're not anywhere. All right. Uh, well, if you have three hours, uh, that's Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan. If you want to hear more, Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, who also wrote about it in Bloomberg Business Week. Appreciate your thoughts. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. We are continuing our education tech coverage as we enter the school season. President Biden's unprecedented student loan cancellations getting some mixed reactions. A new morning consult political survey shows only 48% of Americans support Biden's level of forgiveness. Here to discuss, Sarah Levy, CEO of the investing and financial planning platform Betterment. So... Not necessarily a popular plan. Um, not everyone supporting this and a lot of debate, Sarah. Where do you stand? So I think there are economists on both sides of this issue. And I think we can agree that student loans are a major problem for this country and that there's $1.7 trillion in student loan debt outstanding. And also that this generation is more saddled with student loan debt than any of the generations that have come before. I think where the conversation gets trickier is what to do about it. And so I'm a believer personally that what to do about it lies in advice and technology and that the federal government can play a part, but that business also needs to play a part. How so? Well, you know, I think the, the first the first thing that is very true is that, you know, folks are, are not good at saving and are not necessarily good at understanding if I have another disposable dollar, where should I put it, right? And so I think there's sort of a regulatory and technology conversion here that's pretty exciting where we now can develop tools and we at Betterment 
and are developing tools to really say to a, a student loan uh, a student loan holder, look, what should you do with your next dollar instead of going to Starbucks this week? You know, what would five dollars a day do? in terms of visually, we can show you visually, what would it do in terms of your debt pay down, both your timeline, your costs, and how can we set you up for a better future? And so I think that's one thing we can do is is offer technological solutions. And the other thing we can do is partner with employers, right? Because as with many other great uh, issues of the day, like retirement savings, employers have a role to play in supporting their employees. How do you see businesses and employers playing a bigger role role here and how could that also impact the choices that students or you know prospective students make about how to access education yeah so i think it's a great question i mean i think this is you know for those who aren't that excited about the current approach i think the government is taking you know one of the concerns is this moral hazard issue of are people going to make choices about their education that they're then going to expect to be forgiven by the government and therefore will they make choices that maybe aren't the best choices for them and then similarly will the costs go up because the schools know that they can access this incremental funding so i think this is a real challenge that i think we're poised to to help with in a couple ways. I mean, number one, there's more legislation, if you can imagine, coming down the pike um, in the SECURE Act 2.0, you know, sort of on the table later this year, that's talking about tax incentives for businesses to help potentially even with a match where you link a 401k and student loan management. So imagine if I'm an employee and I can't access my company match for retirement because I'm paying down debt from my student loan and I just don't have an incremental dollar to save. Well, here's an opportunity for the government to step in and say, okay, whether you save by paying down your debt or whether you save by putting a dollar in your 401k, either way, your employer can match that contribution. And that's a really powerful way for employers to be able to channel dollars where they're going to best serve their employees. What would be your message to, you know, rising freshmen right now who are considering a college education, who have, you know, you know, innumerable online learning options now available to them and companies that are reducing degree requirements. So, you know, you've got some people out there saying, I don't need a four-year degree. I think it's true that there's no one-size-fits-all. I mean, I think on average and over time, education has helped to lead to better outcomes, you know, for society. So, but I think we could talk about whether that education is about starting young and preschool and getting out of the gate stronger, or whether it's about a four-year college. I think the idea that, you know, there are vocational programs and other ways to go about it are true, but all of these things have costs and each has a different ROI. So I think, you know, regardless of the path an individual chooses, because there are many paths, and I agree they're kind of more varied than they were perhaps, you know, a generation ago, um, there still is going to be this problem of people need to borrow to fund any of these, whether it's vocational Mm -hmm. school or whether it's a four-year college. They're borrowing. Sometimes they're not finishing their degree. They're borrowing for that. And these are costs that then they need to understand how to tackle, right? And that's really the problem we're seeking to solve is how do we help employees who have taken on this debt? How do we help them tackle this debt in the most responsible way to give them the best personal long-term outcome? All right. Uh, Sarah Levy, CEO of Betterment, thanks for weighing in on what has been a raucous debate. Appreciate it. Okay, coming up. Could the future of textbooks be NFTs? We're going to ask Pearson CEO Andy Bird about that and more next. This is Bloomberg. What if 
everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week we're focusing on education technology and how innovation in this field is fueling a new way of teaching and learning. And in today's crypto report, we're talking about how NFTs could change the game when it comes to textbooks. Let's take a deeper dive into all of that with Andy Bird, CEO of Pearson, one of the world's largest textbook publishers. So Andy, I remember buying a lot of very heavy, very expensive textbooks. Can you explain to me how NFTs could change this industry? Oh, hi, Emily, and thanks very much for having me on your show. Um, I, I, I remember those days as well of, of, the, of the heavy textbook, and uh, at Pearson, we're very much leaning into digital technology as a, as a way forward. And in fact, now, if you subscribe to Pearson Plus, uh, you'll be able to get those textbooks for just $9.99 a month. And it's, it's one example of how we as a company are really looking at technology to, to move the whole industry and the whole sector forward. I think the pandemic acted as an accelerator in terms of really transforming the world of education and the, and the world of learning, um, per your earlier uh, discussion with Sarah. And in that regard, I've been really interested in how technology and how Pearson can utilize technology um, uh, both in terms of NFTs, non-fungible tokens and blockchain. But the notion of having a, a transparent ledger um, and the impact that would have on authors and royalties, for example, I think is very, very interesting. It also allows us to deconstruct the textbook. And, you know, once the textbook is in digital form, you can look at ways as offering not just text by the chapter, say, but also video. You see some of the examples on the screen now of Pearson Plus. You know, a lot of video, uh, a lot of animation, a lot of graphics, a lot of audio suddenly starts to come into play as you look at the way that um, uh, learning and, and textbooks are evolving. And so as a company, I think it's uh, very important that we're sort of trying to lead research and development in that space. And that's what we're doing. So give an example of how 
a textbook could be an NFT and how that could survive, you know, pass, be passed on to multiple students and how Pearson could still potentially profit from it, even if we're talking, you know, three, four students down the line, like a used textbook. Yeah. Yeah, I think think of a textbook, a modern digital textbook comprising of various learning modules. So where in the past, in the analog world, you had chapters and illustrations and pictures, in the future, those chapters are broken down, as I said, into different learning modules. And the creator of those learning modules could, in theory, mint that learning module as an NFT and therefore not only get paid by Pearson, if that's an author, there's a real interesting angle in terms of user-generated content and all of this, by the way, um, but the, 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 um, the, the author or the creator of that content, it could be a video, it could be in a take a form of audio, um, would then be able to participate as that learning module is um, utilized down the blockchain, as it were, and the blockchain acts as that transparent ledger and makes sure that everyone gets paid an appropriate amount of money. It actually, I think, could lead to greater accessibility and affordability for education as you look more globally. Now, call me old-fashioned, but um, as much as I didn't like carrying those textbooks around, I still like a paper textbook. I like reading a physical, uh, you know, a physical newspaper, a physical book. I like underlining it, folding down the pages. Is there a place for that in this future? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we still give you the option to get that, that printed textbook and um, we'll continue to invest behind those you know as an analogy um I, I i like the music industry recorded music industry and if you think of the textbook as being the vinyl record and then the e-text as being the cd and then in music of course you had mp3 players and now you have the likes of spotify and tidal and others where you pay a subscription for access to 40 million songs in the world of education up until recently we've kind of been stuck in the cd um, and I think the great opportunity is, yeah, you can still buy the vinyl record, you can still buy your textbook, but the great opportunity is how we utilize technology. You know, we mentioned blockchain, I think augmented reality, um, virtual reality is going to play a very important and significant part in parts of education going forward. And so what really excites me to be leading Pearson is, at this moment in time is all of these great opportunities to really harness you know, the great technological innovations that have happened in other sectors like music, like entertainment, the introduction of 5G, having the ability to store everything on the cloud, the, the, the way that devices are developing, you know, both in terms of um, mobile phones and the like, and bringing all of those together to make learning more accessible and more affordable to more people. Because through learning, and learning for, throughout your lifetime, of course, we all, we all improve ourselves and, and our economic outlook of society. How are you thinking about the metaverse and how that could potentially impact the textbook industry? Obviously, it's early days. Well, a couple of examples. I'm in Los Angeles, you're in San Francisco, and we could both be in the same classroom together in the metaverse. And we can participate in experiments. And we could go up to the whiteboard and 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 uh, uh, annotate each other's notes. We could both, at, at the sort of click of a button, be transported back to ancient Greece and be in a Greek theatre watching a Greek play. 
or immediately then transported into the deep, you know, Anazan jungle or inside a cell structure. Or if you're a medical student, look at procedures and, and be able to practice surgical procedures without having to use, um, you know, real bodies, as it were. So many, many applications. Again, I think, you know, for a, a, an urban, you know, in K through 12, the ability to open the eyes and open the world to those students who previously have never had the opportunity to go and visit some of these places in the world and to, to have some of those experiences. I think the metaverse is a really, really interesting use of technology to enable that. Fascinating. How much has changed since I went to school and how much uh, could continue to change? Andy Bird, CEO of Pearson, appreciate you sharing that vision with us. My pleasure. As some analysts are raising the alarm about the downturn worsening, one company says that despite all the talk of layoffs and fears of a recession, they have found evidence to the contrary. Wasim Daher is the founder and CEO of Pilot, an accounting firm for startups and small businesses that specializes in CFO services, bookkeeping, tax prep. He joins me now here in the studio with more on their data. So there's a lot of gloom and doom. Out there, you know, we've had guests on the show who said there's going to be millions of layoffs in tech. We just saw Snap announce a 20% cut across the board. What are you seeing that tells you it's not so gloomy? That's a great question. And, you know, we, we sort of saw the same stuff in the market, all the VC memos, all the headlines. We said, let's take a look at the data. And so for us, we're the largest startup accountant in the United States. We have thousands of customers. We processed $100 billion of accounting transactions last year. We said, what does the data show? And what we did is we took a look at about 1,000 of our customers, and two kind of key data points emerged. The first was that in June, we found that 86% of them actually maintained or even increased headcount. And then from a revenue growth perspective, Q1 definitely was a bit soft for folks, but we saw Q2's revenue growth to be actually very comparable to late 2021. So indicators are actually looking pretty good for this kind of early mid-stage startup segment. Okay, so what's the discrepancy in the numbers? That's a great question. And I think here's what's going on, which is especially in the early and mid-stage, I think two things are happening. The first is that there's definitely pain from the downturn, but I think it's more specifically and more pronouncedly felt by companies that are really have nice-to-have offerings as opposed to really need-to-have offerings. And the second is I think the dynamics in kind of late-stage and public markets are very different than what you see in the earlier kind of mid-stage ecosystem for startups. Okay. Uh, well, let's take Snap as an example. 20% cuts. We also reported that Meta is cutting off hundreds of contractors. Alphabet's in the middle of a hiring freeze. Apple, I talked to Tim Cook, you know, they're going to pull back on some hiring and spending plans going into next year. He said they're being very deliberate about their spending. Wouldn't it be an even more difficult world for startups that are relying on, you know, whatever they have in the bank to survive, and many of which aren't profitable? Yeah, so I mean, you definitely think so, but I think the thing that's interesting is, let's say you're a startup, you're targeting a $60 billion market. And because of the downturn, maybe it's now only a $40 billion market. But you're concerned about getting from 0.05% adoption to 0.1% adoption. You're not running into the ceiling. Whereas you know these public companies absolutely are. When there is a 20 or 30% reduction, they're going to feel that in the financials. 
Your business is is interesting, and I wonder what sort of trends you're seeing in your own business in the downturn. Are more companies turning to outsourcing with services like yours rather than having these systems internally because they're trying to limit their own internal headcount? Absolutely. I think there are kind of two phenomenons we're observing. One is folks that might have built the function in-house are more interested in the flexibility of relying on an external provider. And the second is I think the tone has changed among startups, where in 2021, you know, it was really the era of growth at all costs. Now it's, look, you need to know your metrics. You need to know the KPIs. You have to be really sharp on the numbers. And lots of folks come to us to just get a better handle on those stats. How are you handling the downturn internally? I mean, how are you making decisions? Do we maintain headcount? Do we continue to hire? Do we make cuts? So one of the things we feel really strongly about is the amount of money you spend cannot be a function of how much you have in your bank account. You sort of have to earn the right to spend it. There's this concept called the burn multiple, which is the amount of new recurring revenue you add in a given period and its relation to your burn rate, that those need to stay in lockstep. So for us, we think about how those ratios look. And then we also try to pre-compute a little bit. Look, if revenue trends in way X, this is what we'll do. If revenue trends in way Y, this is what we'll do, so that we don't have to be surprised if, as the situation changes. Some of your investors, Sequoia, Bezos Expeditions, what are they telling you? You got any advice from Jeff Bezos? Jeff Bezos, you know, has not given me a call. I'm still waiting for uh, for the call and text from Jeff. It's been it's been interesting because I think the dynamics are highly variable depending on what the company is up to. One of the things that we like at Pilot is you have to do your accounting. I mean, even in tech, tough economic times, you're not going to just not do your tax return. So mm-hmm. we, we're hoping or we feel that our business is more recession-proof or downturn-proof than the average. Does a more hawkish Fed uh, change things for you and your own business? You know, it's interesting because I think the public market dynamics, you know, we're many, many years away from being a public company. And I think for the companies we serve, we're, we're really but interested in... in the private markets, there are down rounds, there are layoffs, uh, there is belt tightening, there are companies making hard decisions about their priorities. I think it's absolutely true. And I think you sort of need to kind of keep that hawkish eye on what's happening in your bank account, your current runway, now more than ever, because as you said, access to capital is definitely comparatively limited. So as you look ahead over the next year, what are some of the questions you're gonna be asking the companies that you're working with to give you clues about how the market is changing? Like maybe this is what the data says now, but maybe it's there's a delay. Sure. Yeah, I think we look at a couple things. One is our CFO services team works very closely with a bunch of our customers to help them build out their own financial models, their own forecasts, their own budget. I think we'll also see really good data about what happens in fundraising markets. There's a lot of kind of pent-up dry powder at VC firms that is not currently being deployed. I think Hmm. depending on sort of when that starts to get released into the market, I think we will see potentially very different results. Wasim Gahar, CEO and founder of Pilot, thank you for joining us and good to see you here in person. Thank you for having me. All right, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up Thursday, we've got CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz. He'll join us to talk about the state of cybersecurity, whether that is recession proof. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.